verses 1 through 8. I heard you. It's fine. Yeah, you're good. This is audience response. We're good. It's good. So starting verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there, were, there was no place for them in the inn. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we ask that as we come to your word, um, God, that you would impress upon us, um, God, what you would have for us to learn tonight from this um, passage of Luke. God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would shine light on this text, that you would illuminate it. Um, God, that you would shine that same light on our hearts um, and that we would, um, as we as we read and as we listen and as we um, ponder on these things, God, that you would um, draw us closer to Jesus Christ, that you would make us know him better. God, that we would know you better, that we would know ourselves better, that we would understand um, ways in which we have believed falsely um, or um, not trusted or not given thanks, um, God, that we have not received your word uh, into our lives in the way that we uh, are supposed to. So we, we ask your help with that, God. We ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would form us and shape us, that you would use the word, um, God, to make us into the people that you've called us to be. Uh, we thank you for this time. Uh, God, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I'm, I was kind of just... just Meditating and, and thinking about um, the Christmas season, the Advent season, um, and and these these two words kind of came into my head: the the, the word mystery and the word mundane. Um, and I think you see both of those ideas in this pastry, right, uh, passage. There, there are these, these incredible things going on, some of which we're going to talk about, some of the most incredible things that have happened in the history of the world, some of the most significant things that have happened in, in the history of the world. And yet at the same time, they happen in the most common and simple of circumstances. Um, and, and it's, there's, there's a significance to that, right? The, the coming together of those two things, of these grand, um, incredible mysteries of, of God's person and sovereignty um, coming into to the simplest uh, of circumstances. And that's kind of the ideas that I want to talk about tonight. They're, they're, the, the title there on your, on your bulletin is this idea of, of providence and presence, right? The, these two things working uh, in our lives, both of them mysteries, and yet one of them um, very much about um, God's presence with us, really both of them um, about God's presence with us, um, but specifically um, how we see that played out in this passage. So let's just kind of jump in. I've got, I've got probably... Too much sermon um, tonight, so we'll just keep going and, and get into it, okay? Um, so starting there in the beginning of the, of the passage, right? Um, so we, we have here sort of a, a historical, um, we're given by Luke the historical situa- situation that surrounds these events starting out in the beginning of the passage, right? It gives an anchor to this story in actual history, an actual timeline, right? So if you think about it like this, when, when you read a fairy tale, a fairy tale starts out how? 
right? It starts out once upon a time, right? It starts out that way for a reason, because it's intended to be nebulous as to its time and place and occurrence, right? You say once upon a time, and that just means somewhere this could have happened or somewhere we're imagining this happen, right? Luke doesn't talk about this stuff like it's once upon a time, right? He says this happened um, in the reign of Augustus during a tenure of, of Quirinius or Cyrenius, depending on which translation you have. This happened at the time of the census, right? Luke is, like we said way back at the very beginning of the study, Luke is a historian of, of a kind. Um, maybe not exactly looking like our idea of a historian, but that's what he is about. He is about trying to compile um, an accurate narrative of the events that have taken place. Um, uh, through Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to give this thing a timestamp, right? He's trying to say this is not some um, myth that the people um, who are calling themselves Christians now um, have bought into. I'm telling you when these things happen. I'm giving you them a historical anchor and point to, to reference, okay? And so, so partially that's what that passage is about. But at the same time, it gives us a whole lot of insight into the way God works in the world. Again, just by reading and seeing some of these things going on, okay? And so the first idea that I wanted to talk about, that first idea sort of on the mystery side, is this idea of providence. Um, the way, and, and if, if providence is a word that you're not used to or you don't hear a lot of, think of uh, this as a definition, that, that, that providence is the way that God is continually involved in the sustaining and the working and the ends of his creation, right? So, so God is in control of all things. He is ordaining all things. Um, he is not an absentee landlord. Right? He is not uh, a, a deistic divine watchmaker who has started this process and has just kind of let it go and he's off in the cosmos somewhere doing his own thing, right? Um, he doesn't wind us up and then walk away. God is intimately involved with every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our, uh, of our um, world and culture and events and history, right? And all of these things are working together. Ephesians tells us that we have a God who is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. Right. He is making all events in in history work together to do what he wants to accomplish. And so what does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that there aren't natural explanations for things. So, for example, we know how rain works. Right. We understand sort of the water cycle process of evaporation and condensation. And 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 we understand the water cycle. We can look at this thing and say there's a natural process to this thing. We understand how crops grow. Right. We understand how leadership and politics and and and, and cultural institutions work. Right. There's a natural explanation for things. And yet the scriptures teach us that behind those natural explanations is a God who is working in all these things. So, for example, Proverbs 16.33 tells us this. The lot, the die, right, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So, so the, the, the picture it's giving is every time you roll a die, and I'm a big board game person, right, every time you roll a die, that die lands exactly where God intends for it to land. And we could talk about that die's movement in terms of gravity and force and inertia and weight and all those things like that, and those would be accurate explanations of what it's going on. But the scriptures are telling us that there's something more going on behind the scenes, that God is actually determining these things, right, that he is working in these things so that his will is accomplished in them. So again, that is to say he is acting in such a way that the created order 
is working according to not only the way that he designed it, not only according to its natural function, but also at the same time, it is working according to his will to accomplish his desires. Okay, so when we come to a passage like this and we notice this historical setting where all these things come take place. Okay, think about this. So the Roman Empire decided it needed a census, right, for taxation or military purposes or whatever. They did it for their own reasons, right? There was a guy somewhere, probably Caesar or whoever else, who made those decisions. They didn't act as puppets or robots when it comes to to God's workings. And yet that decision was perfectly timed to be part of God's plan. And the consequences of that led to the fulfillment of his prophecy, right? That's what we see. Um, they could have taxed people where they lived, right? The, the situation could have gone a little different. He could have imposed a tax and said, no, but you just stay in the town that you live in right now. But that's not what happened. Instead, they, they decreed that you had to return to your ancestral sort of homeland, your ancestral capital, which meant David, uh, the land of David, which is Bethlehem, the hometown of David. If you're a descendant of David, then you go back there. So Joseph and Mary, they pick up from Nazareth and head to Bethlehem. Right. Couldn't it could have worked out a different way. And yet God is working in these things. And then think about this, the timing of the census. OK, if Jesus is to fulfill the prophecy that he is not only from Nazareth, but also from Bethlehem, like right there we go. How does that work? How is somebody going to be from two different places? The timing has to line up pretty well, right? And so what happens is, if, if you don't, I, I kind of looked it up in a thing, it's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It takes about three days of normal travel on, on donkey or walking or horse or whatever to get from there to there. So you think about this. The census happened at a specific window so that it occurred that right when Joseph and Mary got there was the time that Jesus was born, therefore to fulfill the prophecy that, that he would be born in Bethlehem, right? And, and that's a pretty thin window, right, for you to leave and be there at the proper time and then come back and it all to line up, okay? And so, so what we would say is this. The world would look on and go, well, there's a lot of coincidences, a lot of interesting coincidences that happen. And we would say, no, there's a biblical word for that. It's called providence, God works everything according to his plan so that the Messiah would be born not only as a child of Nazareth, but also as a child of Bethlehem and, and, and all these other things that, that, that um, his birth fulfills. And so what we notice is this, probably the case is that providence is usually best seen in hindsight. It's hard for us to look at a situation that's going on right now and understand exactly what God is trying to do in it, right? So it's easier sometimes to look backwards and go, okay, I see how God was working through these events that took place in my life or even these events that took place in history and see how God is working um, through them. Um, but sometimes we get a sense of God's providence even in the moment, Right. And probably most of us can attest to that. That sometimes we have been in a situation where things started rolling, things started happening, and you sense that God was working in them, um, in a special way. Right. You, and, and, and maybe not just in a special way, but you sensed what He was doing through that process. Right. Um, because here's the deal. I, I think we all want that. Um, I can only imagine that Mary and Joseph would have liked a sense of that. Right. It had to be an imposition. That when she's nine months pregnant or whatever, all of a sudden they have to make three days worth of 30 mile, um, donkey back, um, journeys, right? Um, that's not fun, um, when you're pregnant, right? This had to be an imposition for them. 
I have to believe that probably there was a piece of them that was going, what's going on, God? Like, why are you allowing these things to happen in, in, at this time or whatever? But think for a second, not only in their situation, but in our situations, in our daily lives, how our lives would be different if we had an attitude that was more conscientious about recognizing and trusting God's providence in our lives. So instead of asking God, how could you let this happen when things go wrong or, or whatever, instead changing the question to, God, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to use this thing that is happening right now? Because what happens is when we shift that, that belief and that recognition of God's providence, I think, is probably the missing piece that allows you to transition into thankfulness, which is one of the core sort of attitudes of our heart, right? Instead of looking to God saying, what are you doing? We say, no, I know God is good. I know God is gracious. I know he is trustworthy. And so I don't understand what is going on around me. So God... I would like to know what's going on. Like, I would like you to show me what you're going to do with these things. Because I know you're going to do something good. You're going to work this for my good, ultimately. But I don't know. I want to be able to see it, right? But all of a sudden, it changes our heart. Because we go, no, I'm going to trust that God is working in my life and working in my circumstances for good, even when I can't understand it. And yet, many times, in the circumstances of our lives, um, we don't have that attitude. And even sometimes when we have that attitude, man, the mystery of God's providence just continues to, to be like a cloud, right? We can't see through it. We just go, I don't know why these things are happening. Many of us are probably familiar with the, the, the phrase, um, the sort of proverb, God moves in mysterious ways, right? Everybody says that, you know, something weird happens and you go, oh, God moves in mysterious ways. Everybody says that. So much so that I think most people think it's in the Bible. It is not, right? That is not a line from the Bible. It's actually a line from a, a hymn by William Cooper. But I think it's definitely a right sentiment, right? It is a biblical sentiment. God does move in mysterious ways. But one of the lines from that song is, is, is very fitting because he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, right? That frowning providence, right? That's a great line because the circumstances of your life may look like God is not happy, right? He, things are going wrong and you immediately kind of go, boy, is God mad at me? Is he doing these things in some way to punish me or something like that? But that's not the truth, right? God is working for your good, um, he is working in you for your good and your sanctification. And so behind that frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I think that's a right biblical sentiment for us to um, think of, even if it's not in the Bible. We won't always get a clear picture of how God's working. Um, but we can trust that he is good and that he is kind and that he is wise and that he wants what is best for us in all these things. So that providence is a mystery, right? That's the first mystery that we're looking at. But in this passage... One mystery kind of gives way to another mystery, and that's the mystery of the incarnation itself. So looking there in verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
So in a sense, if, as you read that passage, it's very straightforward, right? Um, there's not a lot of flair to it. There's very little theological explanation or fanfare to it. It's almost commonplace, right? It's just sort of matter of fact. As time came and she had a kid and it was a firstborn son and, and she laid him in a manger, right? Um, even if the circumstances are a little bit odd, it still seems very commonplace. But in those two verses, we have described something that amounts to one of the most significant, one of the most pivotal, pivotal moments in the history of the world, right? It sits alongside the resurrection and the crucifixion in its significance. And that is God the Son, having taken on flesh in Mary's womb, is now born into the world. We have a special name for that in, in the church, a special name for that mystery. It's called the Incarnation. And so you could, you could kind of think of the incarnation in terms of, of, of a couple of lines that have come down to us from, from theologians and church history and things like that. Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and forever will be. Another, another theologian has said, while remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Okay? He, he still remained God. He didn't lose any of his divinity. And yet he became what he had not been before, and that was he took on flesh and became human. That is, he in no way ceased to be God, but in every way becomes man. Okay? So, so again, it's, it's, kind of a, it's, it's kind of a hard concept on one level for us to wrap our brains around because we don't understand how it could be the case. And throughout church, church history, many people have gotten it wrong. All right. And so if you look back through like a like a systematic theology kind of text or you're looking through a church history text, you see all these different points in the early church, especially where people are misunderstanding the nature of who Jesus is. So there was a guy named Apollinarius and he was basically saying, well, Jesus is like a 50 50 being. Right. He's like half God and half man. OK, partially God, partially man. That's not right. That is not what we see in the scriptures. Another guy named Nestorius came along, and he said that functionally, Jesus is two distinct people. There's the man Jesus, and then there's the God Jesus, and there's like two people, full people, living at the same time, right? But that's not, that's not right either, okay? Um, and then another guy named Eutychus comes through, and he says, no, 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 Jesus is something new completely, Right. He's not God or man. He's a something else. Right. He's a new kind of being that there is no other. There's no categories to describe him or whatever. And so for the first few centuries of church, this is being argued over and all these different things until we get to this church council called Chalcedon. Okay, and so if you're ever reading church history or if you're ever talking to somebody or listening to somebody teach or preach or a lecture or something like that, and they make a comment about Chalcedonian Christianity, then they mean we're talking about Christianity that has recognized the things that the Council of Chalcedon um, stated. Okay, it's, it's Christianity after Chalcedon. Okay, and, and there's a statement that I'm going to read real quick because it's not too long, but it's basically a statement about this incarnation that the Council of Chalcedon um, creates, a statement about what, what the nature and person of Jesus. And, it's, and it goes like this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, 
co-essential or co-substantial. The words are a little hard to, to, to get a perfect translation of. Co-essential with the Father, according to the Godhead. And co-substantial with us, according to the manhood. In all things likened unto us, but without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And in these later days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, which is the word that we're going to talk about in just a second, hypostasis, not part or divided into two persons, but one in the same son, the only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Okay, And so you might say, man, that language is very kind of convoluted in some ways or whatever. But at the same time, when you get to read it out, it's, it's, it's very clear. And the idea is this. There are two natures, fully divine nature, fully human nature, but one person. One person, Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what we learn. That's what we see in the scriptures uh, presented to us over and over again. If Jesus is less than that in some way, then our salvation becomes in jeopardy. Because Jesus cannot be an appropriate sacrifice for us. He cannot do what he has come to do because he is not um, who he is supposed to be. And so Jesus is both fully God, fully man, 100% both, two natures, one person. And so, again, that, that unity is called, again, another big, cool theological term for you to impress your friends with. That is called the hypostatic union. All right? That idea that Jesus is two natures in one person. Hypostasis means something like substance or foundation or the thing at the bottom, right? And so if it is a hypostatic union, that means Jesus at his core is unified. Right? He's not two pieces. Right? He is one person, unified. His godhood and his manhood, unified in one person. All right? And so that's what's going on in this passage, right? The, the, the incarnation is being laid out for us in, in two, two brief little verses. But at the same time, um, we should probably point out that none of that stuff that I just said is really demonstrated in the text right here. Okay, um, that was there's a, there's a joke about that's the right sermon, wrong passage, right? Everything I just said is not something that you really see in this text, and yet that is what's going on as we look throughout Scripture and learn about who Jesus is. Okay, um, but it's something incredible and something miraculous, even, right? We should call it that. It's a miracle. The incarnation is something that we that we cannot explain in normal categories, right? It's something that God has done that is without precedent up until this point. But see, notice something. Again, in this text, none of that stuff, really the providence or the incarnation are not explicitly the thing that is being taught, right? We're not, it's not referenced in an explicit way. This is just the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Instead, what I think you really notice in this passage is not the grand cosmic themes of God's existence and his sovereignty. That's not what you notice. Instead, what you notice is the simplicity and the humility of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. 
the journey itself in this story has to be humbling, right? Mary is being forced in her condition to make that journey, right? Christy didn't want to, like, go from bed to the couch when she was nine months pregnant. She certainly didn't want to drive a donkey. You don't drive. Did you drive a donkey? I don't know. If you just ride it or drive it, whatever. I don't, I don't have a donkey. Um, but whatever you do, you don't. You don't want to do that at nine months pregnant, right? This was a humbling thing, okay, to be forced to do this by your government. You know, it's interesting because the names of Caesar Augustus and Cyrenius or Quirinius um, are both mentioned in this section. Those names are drawn out to us, right? Both of those men are men of pomp and circumstance and importance and power in the Roman world. Caesar is literally someone who is seen as a god-man, Right. He is somebody who is a human who has been deified because of his position as as the the Roman emperor. All right. And so in Rome and in the empire, he rules, he dictates, he orchestrates, he tries to exert his own sovereignty. And you could even say he exerts his own providence in these things. Right. His name is brought up as this picture. And yet, what do we know? We know God is working behind the scenes, even through Caesar's apparent providence. Cyrenius. Cyrenius, the passage tells us, is the governor of Syria, which is accurate, but, but history tells us that he was more than that. He was also the legate of the region, which legate is a, is a word that basically means supreme military commander, okay, in this region. And so what did that mean? Cyrenius represents the near total authority of not only political Rome, but military Rome in this area, right? And so he is this picture, again, of influence and power and, and what he says goes. I guarantee their wives would not have been put through the same thing. Right? Does that make sense? Their wives would not have had to go through the indignity and the humility of having to make that journey. Moreover, in this situation, we have this line and it says, because there was no place for them in the end. They come to this situation where there's no place for them in the end. Now, here's, here's something that I want you to su- suggest to you, okay? And I don't think this is the only way you can see this passage. There's some, there's some discussion in biblical studies about what's going on here, actually, okay? So there's lots of studies over the last couple of years that have tried to point out that maybe some of the biblical idea, the, the data that we have in the scriptures differs from the way that we have sort of traditionally taught um, and pictured the nativity um, uh, uh, scene, okay? So, for example, first off, that word in, the word translated in, okay? So we think like, oh, like a holiday inn, right? Like a hotel. And so when they came and there was no room for them at the inn, we have the, this picture in our head, okay? The lexical range, the dictionary range of that word um, could mean in. It could mean like a place that travelers on the road stayed, they paid for a room to stay in or or whatever. That could be right, okay? But interestingly, that's the same word that is also used for essentially a guest room in a home. It's actually the same word that is used for the room that the Lord's Supper takes place in. In um, t- towards the end of the Gospels, right? And so a lot of people will look at that word and say, it's not an inn that they are referring to. It's a guest room. Okay, and so that that makes some kind of sense for us a little bit, right? Because what would have been the case is, is if David had been coming back to a family area, if he had relatives who still lived in this place, he probably wouldn't have gone to, according to the hospitality kind of rules of that culture, he wouldn't have gone to a an inn. He would have gone to one of his relatives' homes to stay, right? And then if that's the case and he got there, 
Guess what was probably going on? Because the census was being taken, every aunt and uncle and third cousin from everywhere had already gotten to town. They were already there too. And so when David and, and, and uh, David, I keep on saying David, Joseph and Mary come to the, to the house of their relatives, there is no room in the inn, meaning there is no room in the guest room. Okay, So that means, cool, then where do they stay? Well, quite possibly, because of kind of what we know a little bit about the way a typical house in that, that era would have been set up, a lot of times the way a house worked is you had a common area downstairs that included a barn, like a, sort of like a stall where animals were kept, and then in the upstairs area you had the living quarters, right? So the family's in their living quarters. The guest room is all full, so that means where do you end up as, as um, the people who got there late. Well, you end up not out in the wilderness somewhere, not out in a cave, not out in a barn, but because the barn is inside. The barn is in that room downstairs, okay? And so all of a sudden, the, the picture of the whole passage maybe changes for us a little bit. If, if Jesus' birth was not this picture of of rejection that we often, like we've all kind of thought our heads of the innkeeper, right? It's almost like a character that we feel like should be in Scripture because we've heard the story so many times. He goes to the innkeeper and there's this cruel, unkind, rejecting innkeeper who says, there's no room for you here. You know, you'll have to go somewhere else. Maybe that's not what's going on. Um, maybe what's going on is that Jesus comes to a place, I mean, that, that Mary and Joseph come to a place that is, they're still in a house, they're just not in the best place in the house, right? They're down where the animals are kind of kept, but not even in the stall. They're just next to it or whatever. Jesus comes into the world. He is born into circumstances that are not ideal, right? Certainly not what Augustus or, or Serenius would have had, right? Because room would have been made for them, right? If Caesar had randomly shown up at this house in the middle of the night, what do you think would have happened and his wife needed a place to have the baby? The house would have been cleared, right? And she would have been given given the room or whatever. Um, but that's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus' birth is not accompanied by demands like that. He doesn't look for his place to be recognized or him to be treated according to his station. No, instead what happens is when they come to the house and they say, sorry guys, everybody got here before you. There's not really any more room. Would you mind sleeping on the floor down here next to the fireplace? They say, that's fine. That w- that's okay. We can, we can stay down here. That's not a problem. Um, we'll go wherever we need to. Right, Because we find out later in the scriptures, Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so again, I think maybe some of those traditional ways that we read the story might take away from the point, and the point being this. The story of the nativity is not to present to us the rejection of Jesus. Right, It's there to represent and to, and to depict to us the Emmanuel nature of Jesus. The God with us nature of Jesus. The God amongst us nature of Jesus. The God who is like us nature of Jesus. So again, imagine this different kind of scene. Mary and Joseph show up at the house, and they're, they're maybe not the last ones to get there, but the place is already full, right? Um, everybody's already taken up the guest rooms. Everybody's already gotten the best spots in the house, okay? And so, but guess what? They're still family. They're not going to kick them out, right? Um, so they say, guys, you're just going to have to sleep down here on the floor. 
um, in, in the common area in the house. And so while they're there, all of a sudden Mary's time comes, right? And it's time for, for her to have the baby. And so Jesus is born, not in isolation by himself out in a cave somewhere, but probably in a house that is bustling with activity, right? Um, every woman in the house is probably in that room trying to be helpful because that's what women are like. Okay, and every man in the house is probably as far away from that place as he can possibly get. Right. Because he doesn't want to have anything to do with what's going on. And every kid in the house is probably underfoot and looking through windows and trying to see what's going on. And maybe the men are trying to keep them out of that process or whatever. And so Jesus is born into the most common of of places. Right. Maybe a little extra crowded, but probably in a way that's no not really any different from the way normal people in that time would have been born. Caesar's children, if he had had any, wouldn't have been born in those circumstances. Circumstances. Cyrenius's children would not have been born that way. But commonplace people's children would have been born that way. In a room full of old women and midwives and things like that, ladies in the community, your children would have been born that way if you had lived in that time, if you had been transported back to that world. And so here's what I think the case is, is, is Jesus' birth, the nativity story, it doesn't come to show us Jesus' isolation, okay? That's what happens when we get to the cross, okay? And Jesus was rejected, and Jesus was isolated, okay? That's a, that's a legitimate theme, but I don't think it's what's going on at the nativity. The nativity is about Jesus' presence with us. It is about Jesus who is Emmanuel, God with us, that he is like us, that he is one of us, and that he is associated with the humble and the lowly and the poor in his life. And so the reality is, is this, as we reflect on the nativity, um, that presence of Jesus is no less real than it was in that little house in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, right? Jesus was sitting there as a child, as a baby born present amongst these people, and yet Jesus is no less present with us right now. That Jesus is here amongst us. In fact, he has promised us that he would be. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so that first scene is a reminder of just what we talked about last week, right? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has what? Who has visited his people, right? Who has come down and dwelt among his people and been here and has shared with us and has shared our situation and has shared our life and shared our suffering um, and has been like one of us. Not like the exalted kings and emperors of the world, but like a humble and lowly servant. So I hope maybe that that's what we can, we can reflect on um, over the next couple of days. Man, it is so easy to get caught up in something that looks more like um, a kingly life than it does a humble life, right? Suddenly the holiday takes on this thing where it's about me and my wants and my needs and my presence and my stuff, right? Um, and and we, we lose something in that. And I think this the, the nativity story continues to push us back, um, to continues to press us back in and say, Jesus didn't come for those things, even though he was worthy of them. Even though if there was anybody who ever deserved that kind of life, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus did not come in those circumstances. He did not live that life. Um, Jesus has come in humility, and we should live in that same humility. That Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we are called to the very same calling. We are called not to be served, but to serve others and to give our lives for them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.
and just take some time, again, to reflect on these things, um, to reflect on, on um, the season and the remembrance 